Genesis 42, 1 through 9. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who had came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies, you have come to the, see the naked, nakedness of the land. Genesis 45, one through three. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I graduated high school back in 2004, so you know what that means. 20-year anniversary coming up. Man, that went fast. I'm, I'm an old man now. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you're like into high school reunions, um, but I am not. That is not, that is not for me. Uh, some of you might go to every high school reunion. Some of your best friends might be from high school, but mine are not. Yeah. No, uh, my high school, all the guys were, were like into football and hunting, and, and uh, I was into like chess and uh, playing Roller Coaster Tycoon on my computer, and uh, maybe a little N64, and uh, I wore the same purple shirt with Goofy's face on it for like every Tuesday in ninth grade, and I think that's what I'm most known for uh, from my high school. I, I did not play sports. Uh, I, I was not particularly athletic. I am not. Let me put that in current. Uh, I am not particularly athletic. I, I, you know, there's a lot of words to describe me, but cool was certainly not one of them uh, throughout my high school years. And so, I mean, part of me wants to go back to do a high school reunion sometimes to be like, I've changed! But then, <laughs> I'm not so sure I have. <laughs> But that's what everybody's asking, right? If you go back to a high school reunion, they're all looking around saying like, well, who's changed here? And a lot of times you go home and you say, when you, you run into folks from your hometown or whatever, well, they're all the same. It's the same. But then every once in a while you're like, well, that person's a little different. That's not quite the same. They've, they've had some life experiences that have shaped them. Today we come to a point in the, in the story of Joseph where it has been 20 years since he last saw his brothers. And the question on everybody's mind is, 
how have they changed? Joseph is trying to figure out how have they changed. Today we're going from Genesis chapter 42 all the way through 45 when he's first reintroduced to his brothers until his, he reveals himself to his brothers. And he puts his brothers through a series of tests to see how much they've changed. You know, last time Joseph saw his brothers, well, they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And so it was not a very good last impression that he had of his brothers. And so he's contemplating, are these people the same people? Do people change? You know, the cynic inside each and every one of us says people don't really change. People are people. They're just going to be the same people. And that's, that's, that's actually true for the most part. I, I actually do believe that, that for the most part, people don't change. I mean, they might change a little bit here or there, but I actually believe that for you to make significant progress in your character and in your person, that it requires a movement of God. That God has to actually speak into your life and change you. That you can't actually change yourself, contrary to like every app that you see advertised on your Instagram, that if you just follow their program, you can change yourself. But you cannot change yourself adequately. And so Joseph wants to know, who are my brothers? Are they the same people? In fact, a central tenet of all Christianity is that you can change, but it is difficult. Jesus tells us that you must be born again. He couldn't have come up with a more difficult way of changing. He says you have to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't un understand it all. He's like, well, how am I supposed to crawl into my mother's womb again? And he's like, no, you don't get it. You must be born again. You have to be changed. Your inner core of who you are has to become a different person if you want to inherit the kingdom of God. So we do believe that change is possible. We just believe it to be so difficult that it's only a work of God that can accomplish it. I'm reminded of Eustace Scrub from the Chronicles of Narnia. Is anybody familiar? You really, if you're going to go to this church, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to start handing out Narnia sets because it's like all of my illustrations, okay? I, I just have a deep love for Narnia. I try to get my kids to read it a couple times a year and they make it through like half a chapter and then they're like, no thanks. Um, but I have a deep love for Narnia and I'm reminded of Eustace Scrub, who's one of my favorite characters. And Eustace is introduced in The Voyage of Don Treader, which I will defend as the third book of Narnia. If you have an opinion about that, we can argue later. And he's just this miserable kid. I mean, his name says it all. C.S. Lewis wrote the name to show how miserable of a person he is. He said, there was once a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's how they, he's introduced in the book. And he's just this miserable, arrogant, whiny, self-centered kid. His parents have given him everything. I think he's an only child. I'm an only child as well. Maybe that's why I resonate with him. And he's constantly pointing the finger. He's constantly trying to say, you're a hypocrite and you're a hypocrite. And why are you hurting me? He's constantly seeing himself as a victim over and over again. And you know, the reality is he's exceptionally self-righteous. He probably made a wonderful student and a terrible friend. He's just not someone that you would want to spend much time with. But by the next book, The Silver Chair, we're reintroduced to Eustace, and he is nothing like what he was like in The Voyage of Dawn Treader. When he's talking with his friend Jill Pohl, 
she says, Eustace, you've really changed. And here's, here's what Eustace says. He says, I tell you, Jill, I was a different chap last term. I was. Gosh, what a little tick I was. And Jill, and Jill replies, well, honestly, yeah, you were. You were a little tick. And so Eustace says, you think there has been a change then? And Jill responds, it's not only me this season. Everyone's been saying so. They've noticed it. Eleanor Blackiston heard Aunt Adela Pennyfather talking about it in the changing room yesterday. She said, someone's got a hold of that scrub kid. And so Eustace Scrub has become a different person. And it was obvious to everyone. And so here's the question for you this morning. Uh, many of you have to, have to do a little, little uh, time travel in your mind, but... Let's say it's your 20-year anniversary from when you first became a Christian. Or just look back 20 years ago. Are you the same person? How have you changed? Is it noticeable to those around you? And I'm not talking about hairstyles. I'm not talking about clothing trends. I'm talking about character. Can someone observe your life for a period of time and say, that person's changed. And here's a joyous thing that I realized this week, is that I've known some of you for over 10 years. And that means that you've known me for over 10 years. And I can praise God, because you're not the same people. And hopefully I'm not either. The Lord is working. To be a Christian is to be constantly growing and changing, developing and progressing. It's called the process of sanctification. Christianity is an invitation to constantly be growing and changing. Because, friends, God really does change people. He really can change you. He really can change the people closest to you. He really can. You can't change them. And so the best thing you can do if you have a friend that you're thinking, God really needs to change this person, is to start praying but he really can change people. And so here we have Joseph. He's looking at his brother saying, have these guys really changed? So before we jump into the story today, I have to get us caught up. I'm sorry. We've been going through the Genesis narrative for like a whole year. We're almost done. Two more weeks of Genesis. And all God's people said, amen. And after that, we'll have a short break of uh, of the ex expositional series, and then we'll go right back into John. And, uh, you know, maybe we go through John for two years. We'll see what's happening. Uh, we, ha we currently have John planned for about a year, but I've already come to, uh, I just realized that it might take me longer. Um, so we're going to be going through the life of Jesus, though, and what better to study as a church than the life of Jesus. So uh, we've been going through Genesis for a long time. We're in Joseph right now. The Joseph narrative is a long narrative. It's one long story. So I have to get you caught up. If you've been here every week, I apologize. I'll, I'll make this brief. Um, Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the favorite son of Jacob. Uh, he and his brother Benjamin were the only two sons born of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. That's a lot, whole other story, the whole favorite wife thing. He's got four wives. But being the favorite in the family tends to take a toll. And so Joseph, much like used to scrub, was a spoiled brat. He walked around, his father made him look like the favorite to everyone around him. He acted like the favorite. He started having these wonderful dreams that one day his brothers 
would come, it was, you know, they were like uh, sheaves of corn or something But in the dream. But in reality, the way he interpreted it was one day his brothers and his mother and his father were going to come to him and they were going to bow down to him. And they said, Joseph, you're crazy. Please stop sharing your dreams with us. But he didn't care and he kept sharing his dreams because he was completely unable to process how other people were reading him. We all have friends in our lives that are unable to process how other people are reading them. Some of us are the friend in our life that are unable to process that. He had this favorite coat that he wore that his father gave him, and then one day he's out checking on his brothers in the field, and they say, here comes that dreamer, let's get rid of him. So they plot to kill him, but then at the last moment, Judah steps in and is like, you know what? Let's not kill him, let's sell him! into slavery, into Egypt. We'll make money and get rid of him. Two birds, one Joseph. So they send Joseph out into slavery. He goes into, to, they dip his coat in blood. They bring him back to his father. His father tears his coat and says, my son is gone, his favorite son. And so then he starts investing all of his favoritism into Benjamin, uh, Joseph's full brother. Meanwhile, Joseph is sold into slavery again in Egypt, and he, um, through a set of circumstances, gets thrown into an Egyptian prison. Uh, while he's in the prison, he becomes in charge of everything, and then uh, some of the, the king's officials are also thrown in the prison. They have dreams. They ask Joseph to interpret the dreams. He does, and he does it accurately, but then he still doesn't get out of prison until two years later. Pharaoh has dreams, and one of the officials that, that Joseph had interpreted the dreams for, it says, hey, I know a guy. He's in prison, but we can call him up and he can interpret your dream. So that's what happened. They call him out of prison. Joseph comes out. He's been in Egypt for 13 years. They bring him out of prison. They have to shave his beard off, make him look not quite so crazy. And they bring him into Pharaoh's room. And Pharaoh shares his dream of seven fat cows being devoured by skinny cows and seven fat pieces of corn being eaten by seven terrible-looking pieces of corn. And Joseph says, I know exactly what that dream's about. That means that there's going to be seven years of famine. There's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And here's what you should do, Pharaoh. You should find someone very capable and put them in charge and let them have a 20% investment scheme where everyone in Egypt has to save 20% of all their food, and then when the seven years of famine come, we'll be ready. And Pharaoh says, well, you have a plan. You're a man with a plan. You're in charge. You've got it. And so Joseph has been in charge for quite a little while now. He's been in charge for at least seven years because the years of plenty are over. And this is how the last passage ends. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, we've covered passages like this earlier in Genesis, but let me give you a little reminder. When the Bible says all the earth, you have to remember that the Bible is a document written in a specific time and in a specific place. And so the, what they mean when they say all the earth is the known world at that time. As far as I'm saying, it's the known world. He's not saying that every person on the planet came to Joseph. That's just not what it's trying to communicate. When you read the Bible, you have to realize what it's trying to communicate. And to the original readers and to the original author, they understood very plainly what all the earth meant, okay? So, go with it here. All the known nations were experiencing famine, 
and were traveling to Egypt to be relieved because they heard that Egypt has food. So Joseph's plan has worked. Now it's been 20 years because he's made it through the seven years of plenty. He had 13 years before that. He's at least 37 years old, my age, or up to 40. He's been doing this for quite a little while because it's been famine for a little while and people are having to come and look for food. And that's where we pick up this week. Chapter 42, it starts with this. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Why are you just looking around? Why are you looking at each other? That sounds like something a dad would say, right? That's very much a dad statement. Why are you looking at one another? I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy some grain for us there that we may live and not die. So Jacob is commissioning his sons to go and buy grain. One detail that he, um, that we're not going to read right now, but that happened is he refuses to send Benjamin because Benjamin is now his favorite son. He doesn't want Benjamin to go down to Egypt. He wants to keep Benjamin close. So he sends the other 10 sons down to Egypt to buy grain. So the, the brothers walk all the way to Egypt and they're like, hey, where do we get the grain? Where do we get the grain? And they keep on pointing. Hey, there's your pyramid over there. Okay, go get the grain over there. The pyramids were there. I don't think was, this was in a pyramid. Um, but you go over there. I'm not sure if the pyramids were there or not. Anyways, I'm not an archaeologist. I have no clue. You go over there, get the grain. And so they, they walk in. And they're ready to meet the person in charge of the grain. And who walks in? But Joseph. The guy they sold into slavery. But Joseph's, you know, Hebrew men, they wore a beard. Joseph's clean-shaven. So they didn't recognize him. He's dressed like a king. Why would they be looking for their brother in this situation? And so Joseph, he walks in, and you've got to wonder what went through his mind at that moment. Here's, here's ten dudes, all with beards, speaking Hebrew to one another. And that one, oh, I know exactly who these guys are. And so Joseph, right at the first moment he recognizes exactly who they are but they don't know who he is and so we have this whole scene where they don't know who Joseph is but Joseph knows who they are and so Joseph has to be wondering are they the same people that they were 20 years ago when they sold me into slavery he doesn't know he doesn't know so the big question well, first of all, what's he thinking of? What do you think is the first thing that goes through Joseph's head? The dream. They're, they're, it's coming true. His brothers are here. And they're bowing down before him. Finally, after all these years, after those years as a slave, after those years in an Egyptian prison, he's seen his dream. It's coming to fruition. It's not complete fruition because his dad's not there yet, but it's coming to fruition. And then... The big question is, what does Joseph do? All right, so he's got choices. He's got choices. He could say, and if all he cared about was justice, Joseph could walk in there and be like, Ha! It's me, Joseph! You sold me into slavery. Guess what? Now you're my slaves. Welcome to Egypt. And if that's all he cared about was justice, that would be the just thing to do. Now, there's another choice. He could walk in. You know, Joseph's changed. He's a much more mature person now. He's, 
really encountered some things. He is not the same person that he was. He's not the same spoiled brat. We've learned that. And he could walk in and he could say, brothers, it's me, Joseph. It's your lucky day. Let's all be a happy family again. I forgive you. But that would be irresponsible, would it not? If these brothers were the same bloodthirsty, terrible people that they were before, that were just throwing random brothers into the well and getting rid of them, trying to murder them and selling them into slavery, wouldn't it be a bad thing to just say, come back into my life? I mean, they don't, Joseph doesn't know what they're going to do to him. And so what does Joseph do? But he has to play his cards close to his chest. He's got to keep a straight face. He's got to not let them know that he speaks Hebrew. He's got to keep his Egyptian-ness going. He's in Egyptian clothes. He's Egyptian ruler. They think he's an Egyptian. And so because he's playing his cards close to his chest, he decides to call them spies, which if you remember, the very first thing we learned about Joseph back in chapter 37 is that Joseph was giving a bad report of his brothers. He was acting like a spy. And so now there's all this literary irony going on throughout this passage. Now Joseph calls his brothers spies, and he throws them into a jail so he can figure out what he wants to do with them. And what he does is he conceives of an elaborate scheme to put the brothers in the exact same situation that they were in before. In the situation where dad's favorite son can be sold for silver and they wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. And he wants to see what they'll do. And so he concocts this elaborate scheme to make it happen and he goes back after three days and he tells them, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I need to know about your dad. I need to know about your brother. Are they still around? Yes, they're still around. Okay, you leave Simeon here, one of your brothers, you have to leave him here. And... The rest of you can go back. I'll give you a little bit of food. And don't you dare come back to Egypt. Now, he knows this famine's going to last seven years, so they're going to run out of the food that he gives them. Don't you dare come back to Egypt without your brother, Benjamin. You need to bring Benjamin with you. And so the brothers, right then they know that they're in trouble because dad's not letting go of Benjamin. First of all, Joseph's watching. Are they going to have compassion for Simeon? Compassion is a marker of a changed life because when you have experienced God's grace that's been lavished upon us, you realize that that's unmerited. It's compassion that God has had on us. And so he turns us into compassionate people, especially people who have experienced injustice. And so he's watching to see how they act to Simeon. But more than that, he wants Benjamin to be brought back. And the moment that he shares this plan with the brothers, Reuben turns to his brothers and he starts speaking in Hebrew. You've been in that situation, I'm sure, where someone is in the room, they don't think you know the language that they start speaking, and then it's like, ha ha, I understand what you're saying, got you. So Reuben turns and he starts speaking in Hebrew. Now Joseph has not disclosed he knows Hebrew. And Reuben, he says, Reuben's the oldest brother, he says, did I not tell you guys, isn't that such the oldest brother, didn't I tell you all not to sin against the boy? He doesn't mention Joseph by name. He just says the boy. 20 years ago, he's bringing it back up. Reuben's probably been insufferable for a long time about this. But you did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. Reuben recognizes the parallels in the situations immediately. And so what does, what does Joseph do when he hears this? 
It actually says that Joseph, when he hears Reuben say this, he has to leave the room and he starts weeping because he knows that Reuben is feeling remorse, that all of the brothers feel some sort of remorse. Now, how can you tell if someone's really changed? One thing you're always looking for if someone has really changed is remorse. Remorse, we know this because we've seen the TV shows about the people trying to get out of jail, right? It doesn't matter if you did the thing that put you in a jail or not. The parole board just wants to know that you feel remorse for the thing that you're in jail for. So you have to go before the parole board and explain to them how sorry you are. This is what we know, that people look for remorse to know if you have changed. But friends, remorse is not enough to show true change. Because if it was, that moment, right then, Joseph would say, it's me. You've obviously changed. But no, Joseph still wants to see how much they've changed. He wants to know that they don't just feel remorse, but that they have repented. Friends, feeling sorry for your sins does not mean that you've repented from your sins. Feeling sorry that you've done something does not mean that you have changed. A heart that's changed by God wants to run away from the sin and run to God. And so the first step in change, I don't mean to downplay remorse, the first step in true change is remorse. Deep remorse. Realizing that you need to change. Your mindset has to go from, I'm a basically good person who makes mistakes sometimes, to, you know what? I'm a screw-up. I... There's something wrong with me. My heart, it wants things that are not good for it. This is the first step of change. And this is what, how we saw it in Eustace Scrub's life. If, if, by the silver chair, he doesn't say the same thing about Eustace Scrub. When Eustace Scrub is in, introduced in the next book, it says, his name was unfortunately Eustace Scrub, but he wasn't a bad sort. So how did Eustace Scrub go from being such a terrible, miserable human being to being a delightful person? Well, we get the story in The Voyage of Don Treader. Eustace had an experience where he was sucked into Narnia, the magical land where Aslan, the Christ figure, reigns. And in, in Narnia, he's there with a couple of his cousins who are some of the children from the first book, and they go on this voyage across many different islands throughout the, throughout the thing. And he is just the most terrible person throughout all of these island adventures. But they get to this one island, and Eustace kind of wanders off by himself, as he does sometimes, and he finds a dragon's lair. And at the dragon's lair, he sees all of this jewelry, because dragons like to, to keep treasure. And so he sees all of this treasure, and he walks up, and he's like, oh, I think I'm going to put on this bracelet, but it won't fit here, so he slides it all the way up his arm, and for some reason, he decides to take a nap in the dragon's lair. And when he wakes up, his arm is hurting. Oh, the bracelet's so tight. And he looks, and it looks like a dragon is right next to him. And he looks the other way, it looks like a dragon's over here. And then he runs out of there because he doesn't want to be near the dragons. And he looks into the water and he sees a dragon's face looking right back at him. Eustace has become a monster. He realizes that he is the dragon, that he's looking at his own arms. And in that moment, Eustace feels remorse. Because the dragon represents the monster that he has been this entire time. Now he's taking on a physical form of the monster that he has always been. And he suddenly realizes how terrible he has been to everyone. 
to everyone. Now, Eustace can't get out of his dragon form. He does end up getting close to his cousins, and he wants to change back into a boy, and eventually he runs across Aslan, the Christ figure. He's a lion. And Aslan says, he, he leads him to a water, and, and Eustace knows that if he is to go into the water, that it would bring healing. But Aslan says, before you get in the water, you must undress. And so Eustace he thinks he understands. He's like, well, I'm not wearing clothes, but I think I understand. Maybe dragons shed their scales like a snake. And so he starts taking his claws, and oh, it hurts, and he digs his claws into his body, and he does. He sheds his scales, but then when he comes out, he's still a dragon, representing our desires to change ourselves. It hurts. We'll take ourselves through anything to change ourselves, but then at the end of the day, we're still the monsters. And then Aslan looks at him and he says, I must undress you. And so Eustace finally agrees and he lays down. And Aslan comes toward him and he's terrified at first. And Aslan takes his claws and he digs deep into Eustace's back. And he sheds and he pulls away the dragon scales and pulls the boy out of the dragon and throws him into the water and brings him back out, showing that it's not our own efforts that can change us, but it's only the difficult sometimes but compassionate care of Jesus Christ who can bring salvation, who can really change us, who can rescue us from the monsters that we all are deep inside. Here what Eustace says, he says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I might had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And he pulls, he throws Eustace into the water. He pulls him out of the water. And Eustace can't even really explain this, but then he gets him new clothes. And isn't this what the Lord does for us when we recognize the monsters that we've become? The first step is remorse, but there's so many more steps there. If you don't feel remorse, you certainly won't change, but then we have to be like Eustace. We have to set our hearts away from the things that turn us away from God and toward the Lord. We have to trust in Him to save us. And it's not an easy process, but it's a good one. So Joseph lets his brothers leave, even though they feel remorse, and he doesn't see them for like two years. He leaves, they leave Simeon in an Egyptian jail for quite some time. They go back to, Joseph, to Jacob, and they say, hey, Dad, um, the guy who's, who's kind of nice, who's kind of weird, he threw us into jail, and then he said, you've got to leave a brother here, but then if, you bring, if we bring back Benjamin, our youngest brother, that he'll give us more grain. And Dad said, absolutely not. I've lost Joseph. I've lost Simeon. No way I'm letting you take Benjamin. What if I lose Benjamin too? Well, hunger has an effect on people. And after some amount of time, Jacob finally relents. And he relents because Judah goes to him. And Judah, the one who had the idea to sell, to sell Je Joseph into slavery, comes to him and says, look, I will ensure Benjamin's life. 
I'm pledging my life for Benjamin's. We have to go get food, Dad. And so Dad sends the sons back to Egypt. They, they make their way back to Egypt. When they get there, Benjamin is there, and so they're welcomed into Egypt. The Benjamin, uh, Joseph's servants immediately take them to Joseph's own house. They're looking around like, oh no, are we in trouble? Are they going to throw us in jail again? What's happening? They seat the brothers at a dinner table. They wash the brothers' feet. They show great hospitality. They give them something to drink. And then Joseph walks in. And he sees Benjamin. And yet again, Joseph has to leave the room and weep. This is something we see Joseph doing over and over again, just feeling overwhelmed with emotion, but knowing he has to keep up the straight face. He can't let the brothers know that he's Joseph yet. And so when he comes back, they serve the the meal. The Egyptians are at one table because then the Egyptians don't want to eat with the Hebrews. Joseph's at his own table to show that he's superior to everyone else. And then the Hebrews are at their own table. And the last time we saw that these brothers eating together, and Joseph was also isolated. Last time they ate together, they threw Joseph into a well, and then they had a nice little meal while he's crying out for mercy. Now he's raised above everyone in the pinnacle of power, and they're having a meal once again. Again, the literary irony is thick throughout this entire story. They serve the food, and Joseph wants to... Well, one, I think he's overjoyed by seeing Benjamin, but two, I think he wants to continue to point out that Benjamin's the favorite. And so he gives Benjamin five times the food that he gives everyone else. The meal ends, and Joseph... He agrees to sell them the grain and sends them away. But his little scheme isn't over. This is where it it takes a weird turn because he said, this is is what I've been planning since the beginning. He sends them away, but he takes his royal cup and he hides it in Benjamin's bag. And so even though they're sent away, he goes to his servant and he says, go chase them down. We've hid the cup in Benjamin's bag. Go take Benjamin. See if they'll give up Benjamin. We've given them all this grain. See if they'll give up this this favorite brother. And so the the servant overtakes him, and the servant gets there and looks at all the brothers and says, Who took the cup? And they're like, Cup? What cup? I don't know what you're talking about. Who took the cup? Let me know. And so they check all the bags from oldest to youngest. Benjamin's the very youngest. And so they get to Benjamin's bag, and they check it, and what do you know? There's a cup in the bag. And so Joseph's servant grabs Benjamin, starts hauling him back to Egypt, But the brothers wouldn't stand for it. At this moment, this is the moment where we start to see they are definitely different people. Because previously, when Joseph was hauled away, they didn't care. The only one that cared that Joseph was hauled away was Jacob. And he tore his clothes in mourning. But now they take away Benjamin and all of the brothers tear their clothes. They are all distraught. They follow him all the way back to Egypt. And then... When they get to Joseph again, he offers them a deal. He says, look, guys, you've sinned greatly. You've taken this cup, but look, I'll offer you a deal. Only Benjamin has to suffer. Only Benjamin needs to be punished. He's my slave now. He's the one that sinned. You guys can go free. This is the moment that Joseph's been scheming since the beginning. Would the brothers be willing to repeat their sins? Would they be willing to give up their, 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 their favorite brother, the one that they've been envious of? It's a double win for Joseph. He sees it as a win-win. Either, one, the brothers leave Benjamin, 
And Benjamin's not really going to be a slave. He's going to tell Benjamin the second they leave, I'm Joseph, we're friends, you get to be powerful with me. And so he gains a brother, or he sees that they have truly changed, and he gains 11. It's a win-win for Joseph. And this is the moment, this is the peak of the whole story. Judah speaks up, and it's the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. I'm not going to read it all to you because it's pretty long. He recounts the whole thing. He tells Joseph everything about how Benjamin's the favorite and Jacob wouldn't let Benjamin go. And he pledged his life. And the speech ends with this. Judah says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Please let me, your servant, remain. This is the guy that wanted to sell, that, that, whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery. This is the guy who had an affair with his own um, daughter-in-law and then tried to persecute her for it. This is a person who has been changed. He says, let me stay instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And in that moment, Judah is acting as a type of Christ. Christ would eventually come from the line of Judah. Judah is the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus all the way back. And he's acting as a type of Christ. He's displaying true love, laying down his life for his brother. Judah says, no, don't take Benjamin, take me. Benjamin sinned greatly against you. Benjamin might be the sinner, but I'm going to take his punishment. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He says, you might be the sinner, but I'm going to take your punishment. This is true love, and this is what Joseph's been waiting for to see since the beginning. Not only do they feel remorse for their sin, not only will they not do their sin, but they are displaying positive, true love, which is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, laying down your life for the good of another Human. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone be willing to lay down his life for his friends. And this is the moment that broke him. This is the moment that broke Joseph. It's love that breaks him. He sees his brothers have been changed. And instead of leaving the room and weeping, he orders all of the Egyptians to leave the room. He says, hey, if you're Egyptian, you get out of here. And the second they leave, they close the door, and he starts weeping. Now, Joseph's alone in this room with the, the 11, his 11 brothers. They don't know that he's their long-lost brother. And he's sent all the Egyptians out, and he starts weeping. They probably thought he's lost his mind. All the Egyptians hear him weeping. And then he says, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? And in that, the brothers hear him, and they don't even know how to respond. It says they're too distraught to respond. They're shocked. It's unbelievable. Here's Joseph. He's revealed himself. And that's where we pick up next week, with a cliffhanger. Let me ask you this. Have you changed? Are you willing to lay down your life for others? Not just your life, but your rights. Are you willing to be wronged out of love for someone else? To take 
the debt and to absorb it. That's what we see Jesus doing for us. And when Jesus does it for us, he teaches us how to love one another in the same kind of way. Are you willing to lay down your finances? Are you willing to be wronged to help others? The good news of Jesus is that anyone can change. You just have to believe that you're far worse than you ever imagined. This is what Tim Keller's famous saying. Okay, rest in peace. His, you are far worse than you ever imagined. You're far more loved than you ever dared dream. In Christ, you are far worse than you ever dared imagine, yet far more loved than you ever dared dream. And with that, you experience the love of God, and He can change you. Maybe you've been struggling with a certain sin for years and years, and let me just give you a quick what you'd like to change. First, confess it to the Lord. Do you feel true remorse? Lay it before Him. Then consider where's this coming from? Where's this behavior coming from? What desires? What am I wanting? What am I desiring that's leading me to this point to where I keep doing the thing that I hate that I'm doing? Ask the Lord to forgive you. Receive His forgiveness and let your heart be drawn to Him constantly. Because here's the reality. Change is stubbornly slow. Stubbornly slow. It's taken 20 years for these guys. If you observe someone's life for a week, you shouldn't expect to see a whole lot of change. But if you observe someone's life for a year, you hopefully see a gradual increase and love for God. At the beginning of your Christian life, it, it's, it's logarithmic, our growth in Christ. It, it grows a little, it grows sharp at the beginning, and then <laughs> it's slow. It's really slow. There are periods in there that you might bounce up and grow a lot, and I pray that you're coming into a season where the Holy Spirit just gets a hold of your heart and changes you a lot in this season, it's a whole new salvation. Like, a, the, the grace of the Lord is new again. But for the most part, the Christian life is slow growth. But it's constant. You will not be the same person. And, but you need community. You need to hear the word of God. You need to draw near to the Lord over and over again. That's why it's so important that you're here. That's why it's so important that you're reading your scripture. That's why it's so important that you're in community, that you're being discipled and that you're discipling someone, that you're doing all the things that promote growth. Because you can't do it without all of that. You can't do it by yourself. So friends, let me end with this. How has God changed you? And how is he changing you? If he hasn't changed you yet, if you haven't experienced that love of God, today's the day. You're invited. Let the love of our Savior, the fact that an innocent man would die the death that you deserve, melt your heart and change your life. On the night that he was betrayed, he gave us, gave us a physical gift that we might remember that he gave his life for us. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so each week we participate in the sacred meal to remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might go free. He loved us so that we might know God. And so we enjoy this meal. We, we taste it and we're reminded that Jesus is returning and that we long for him to come back. 
church. Let's prepare our hearts to receive this meal and to be reminded of God's love for us. So would you stand as we pray? Father, as we come to your table, we ask that the love of Christ would overwhelm us, change us, and help us. God, as we contemplate this meal, as we contemplate what you've done in our lives, we pray that we'd sing our praises to you because you have been so great. You've changed us so deeply, slowly, oftentimes frustratingly slow, but sometimes fast. And we, God, we pray for a time of corporate change, that our church would be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, that you would just move in our midst, that we would see confession after confession of deep sin and that we would draw near to you, that we would not just feel remorse, but that we would feel your salvific love, that you would change us. God, I pray for anyone who needs to experience that for the first time today, that they would come to you, that they would run to you. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray that this meal would be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.